What's your earliest memory of your mother? For me, it was being in first grade, coming home for lunchtime. My mom would make me lunch, and together we would watch All My Children. And she would laugh if I told her that was my earliest memory. She'd say, of all the memories we have, that's what you remember. But for me, it was our special time together. I think something universal about all of our memories, even if our relationships with our moms now have changed, is that as children, most of us see her as beautiful, radiant, a beacon of safety and warmth and love. That's certainly the cultural depiction of motherhood. So why is it that so many mothers can't see this beauty that their children see in themselves? To be honest, I know my mother never saw herself as beautiful, and that really breaks my heart. Pregnancy seems like a unique experience to me from the outside because it's maybe the only time in a woman's life where you're expected to take up more space. In movies and TV shows, we see jokes about pregnant women's appetites, their demands for strange food combos, their expanding bellies and swollen feet. And yet, this vacation from society's expectations has a hard expiration date, childbirth. After that, no matter how busy your days are or how sleepless your nights are, you're expected to snap back. Snap back to that pre-baby body as fast as possibly can. There's a whole cottage industry built around the idea. Some obstetricians will even allow expecting mothers to schedule fat and skin removal to be done at the same time as a cesarean section, bundled under the cutesy moniker C-Tuck. Now, all of this is coming from someone whose knowledge of postpartum bodies comes entirely from grocery store magazine covers. You know, the ones with a celebrity mom like Beyonce or Duchess Kate or, here she is again, Kim Kardashian, flaunting their post-baby body months or sometimes even weeks after giving birth. So I decided to look into some of those stories and contrast them with statistics I got from various medical sources to figure out what's actually realistic when it comes to this idea of losing the baby weight. Beyonce appeared on the cover of People magazine just four months after the birth of her daughter, Blue, appearing to have lost most, if not all, of the weight she had gained during her pregnancy. In the magazine, Beyonce attributed her weight loss to breastfeeding. According to the Mayo Clinic, breastfeeding really does help postpartum mothers lose weight, but the results are much more gradual. They say moms who are breastfeeding can expect to lose one to two pounds per month and for the process of losing all of their baby weight to take about nine months. That's five months longer than the time frame between when Beyonce gave birth and when she made these claims to People magazine. Victoria Beckham said she followed the five hands diet to return to her pre-pregnancy weight. The diet is so named because it advocates eating five palm-sized meals per day. This stands in contrast to the CDC's recommendation that breastfeeding moms eat at least 450 to 500 additional calories per day in order to maintain healthy lactation. Victoria stated that she did breastfeed her daughter during this time, though it's unclear how many calories she was fitting into the five-hands diet. When Gwyneth Paltrow gave birth to her second child in 2006, she immediately began working out two hours a day, 
with a celebrity trainer in order to return to her pre-baby weight. If this sounds like an impossible schedule for any new mom without Paltrow's resources, know that she herself disagrees. In a 2010 Huffington Post interview, Gwyneth insisted, quote, every woman can make time, every woman, and you can do it with your baby in the room. There have been countless times where I've worked out with my kids crawling all over the place. You just make it work. And if it's important to you, it'll be important to them, end quote. I'm not trying to call out these celebrity moms. Okay, maybe Gwyneth just a little bit, but I'm trying to provide some context around their claims. As hard as I've worked to lose weight throughout my life, at the very least, it was on my timeline. I can't imagine what it would be like to go to the drugstore and see a headline proclaiming, I did this in 12 weeks, and if you don't do it too, it's because you didn't try hard enough. I'm Amy Porterfield, and you're listening to Talking Body. Motherhood is an interesting topic to cover for me because while I feel that being a stepmom to Kate has changed my life in a ton of different ways, I wouldn't say that my body image is really one of them. And yet, for so many women that we spoke to, motherhood was responsible for the single biggest shift in their relationship to their bodies. There's so much I didn't know, and there's even so much I didn't know from child number one to child number two. Like, there's just so many areas that people leave out and that just, like, no one talks to you about. But the postpartum part was definitely by far the hardest for me. I'm 30. I'll be 36 this year in the medical world. That's advanced maternal age already. So there's a little bit of fear with that. How easily will I get pregnant? Will I have to resort to medical assistance for that. It was easier to adjust, but then what they don't tell you is that nothing goes back into the places. So even though you fit in your pants, nothing goes back to where it started. Because I had to go through so much in terms of fertility and the drugs that I was on and the stress and I had miscarriage after miscarriage, I gained a lot of weight. I think after a lot of therapy and a lot of working on myself, I can look at my body and say after motherhood, and I am so grateful for this body and and the scars and the stretch marks and and all of that stuff that I have. So I'm okay with it. But I think as a society, we have to stop tearing down other women because of it. Yeah, I think if you are carrying a baby, then you just have to come to terms with the fact that your body is gonna change. The earliest time I remember being asked if I wanted to have children, or actually really it was more implied that inevitably when I had them, uh, would probably be when I was in fifth or sixth grade. To be honest, I don't even think I'd had a period yet the first time I had been asked if I wanted to have children. I feel like I was never asked if I wanted to have kids. The first toys I ever got were baby dolls. And I felt like it just kind of was assumed like, oh, you want to take care of children. That is your job, you're a girl. I don't think that men in my life have had the question about kids being asked of them, at least not until they were in long-term relationships with a woman who could provide that opportunity. (laughs) 
One of the women we spoke with is Jen, who happens to work at my company. She's laid back, entirely cooler than me, incredibly smart, and just a really good person to be around. Jen gave birth to her first child seven months ago, and her experience with, quote, pregnancy body wasn't the typical journey. The big fear is always like, oh, I'm going to get big. Uh, and how am I going to deal with that? I um, didn't have that experience. Like I was mostly totally fine with the, I guess, the look of how my body changed. Um, I didn't gain a ton of weight. And um, that was a source of anxiety for me because it was actually a complication of my pregnancy. Mother and child are doing totally fine now. In fact, her baby is absolutely precious. But during Jen's pregnancy, her lack of the expected pregnancy belly caused some people to behave in an irrational way. When a woman becomes pregnant, I feel like her body or or the ability to comment on a woman's body becomes so okay across the board. Random people on the street come up to you and touch your belly or like people that, oh my gosh, you're so big or like, or people would say to me, wow, you barely even look like you're pregnant. And like, I think people think that's a compliment, but in my head, I'm thinking like, oh my God, I barely look like I'm pregnant. My baby's like, might not be growing at the right rate. Like you just, you just never know what a woman is going through. And I just, I think there needs like, we need to stop making it okay to comment on women's bodies just because they're pregnant. For Jen, every comment, every attempted compliment was a reminder that something wasn't right with her pregnancy. It was painful and made even more painful because within society's norms, all she could do was smile, say thank you, and keep going. Why is it that some of us feel okay reaching out and touching a pregnant woman without her permission, something we would never dare to do otherwise? Do we feel entitled to share in the experience because it's so universal? We're all born from another person after all? Or is it because women's bodies are not representations of a person, but a concept, a virgin, a vamp, a girl boss, a mother-to-be? Maybe that's why we judge so harshly when a woman steps out of line with her appearance by gaining weight or growing older, because by doing so, she is owning her body purely as a vessel for her experience and needs and betraying her true purpose as an object for others to consume. I had a baby and everything I thought I knew about myself changed. And as a result, I needed to figure out how to put myself back together. If you Google Kimberly Johnson, you might find a photo of her sipping tea, a warm smile framed by copper red hair. You might also find articles with titles like, my session with a vagina practor moved me to tears. Another refers to her as a sexological body worker. Her website is called Magamama, but the name is not a reference to the political movement, as I'll let her explain in just a moment. The one thing I knew for sure going into this interview was that Kimberly's work was laser focused on how a woman's body changes before, during, and after childbirth, and that I really, really wanted to learn more. 
So you wear many hats. I've heard you described as a doula, a sexological body worker, a vagina practor. Did I say that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what I want to start out with is how all of these things fit together. Why this line of work and how did you come to it? I studied the modalities that helped me heal myself, which were sexological body work and somatic experiencing. And then I offered those because I had always had a pretty easy path with my reproductive health. Like I had easy periods. I just didn't have too many questions. And then when I experienced difficulty postpartum with incontinence and pain, back pain, pelvic pain, and I started talking with people, I realized how many women have so many different kinds of pelvic things going on and that they needed help for them. And I was just kind of like, I think I can help. And so I started and then I just realized like, oh, every woman actually needs this kind of embodied work. Yes. So true. Uh, tell my listeners, what does it mean to be a vagina practor? So somebody <laughs> gave me that name. Uh, which I just thought was kind of funny because usually people say, well, what do you do? And I say, well, I do hands-on hands in pelvic floor work, but because most of us are really dissociated from our pelvis and we can't really imagine what it would be like to be touched if it weren't to fix something or it wasn't, there wasn't something wrong or it wasn't a lovership situation. When I was in the middle of giving someone a session, first she said, wow, this feels ancient. And this feels like women have been doing this for each other forever. And then she said, you're kind of like a vagina practor. And even though that's a little aggressive, because I'm definitely not in there cracking vaginas. Um, <laughs> but I think that she was speaking to that there's a structural component to it. So I'm not in there doing like a yoni massage. I'm in the space, really looking at structure and scar tissue, but also how emotions and trauma are related to that territory. Got it. Good. I, I'm glad that you explain that because I think it's really interesting. So your community and website are called Magamama. And what does Magamama mean? And where did that name come from? Magamama, so Maga means sorceress in Portuguese and Spanish. It's a Latin derivative, Maga. And in my neighborhood in Rio, I lived in Brazil for eight years. And in my neighborhood, everyone called me the Mago do Corpo, which is the body sorceress because I had a lot of people, I, I happened to live around a lot of circus performers. And when they would get injured, they would come to me and then they would leave my house well and be able to perform. So they were calling me the MAGA. Then when I became, well, I was already a mom, but when I started working with more women, I realized just like the sorcery that we all have to do to juggle all the roles that we have and who we are to whom in our lives. And then of course it became something else to many people. Um, and as one of my friends said, cause I have a MAGA tattoo actually, they're like, this really didn't age well. And I'm like, fair, fair comment. Um, and in the future, maybe even when this podcast comes out I have a new website, which is my name, KimberlyAnnJohnson.com. Um, it was hard for me to give up MAGA mama cause some people call me that as affectionately. And because everything I stand for is so opposite what most people feel that Make America Great stands for, I feel like what I offer actually will make America great again or make <laughs> if it was, wasn't great before, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's one of those odd things. I could have picked any name in any language anywhere in the world, right? Like millions of choices. I happen to have picked that one word that then uh. have a whole nother meaning. So 
Right. Well, I believe everything happens for a reason. So there was definitely some kind of reason for that. Now, a lot of your work, including your book, references this concept of the fourth trimester. What is the fourth trimester of pregnancy and why is it so important for new mothers' relationships with their bodies? So my first book was called The Fourth Trimester, and it's um, a term that most people know about the three trimesters, and there's all kinds of information out there about those three trimesters. And now I've seen, even just since my, that book came out three years ago, I've seen someone say a pre-mester, like pre-first trimester, and then I've seen there's also a book called The Fifth Trimester. Oh. It's about transitioning to work. The fourth trimester is the period of time immediately after having a baby, um, because the baby and the mom are dependent 100% on each other for their health. And so we tend to know that when, when the baby's inside the body, it's kind of obvious and everyone's really careful about how they use their energy and what they eat and, and how they, you know, the energy that's around them and how they manage stress. But then when the baby comes out, there's all of this emphasis on getting back to who you were. There's no real great maternal leave. You know, some companies are doing better with that, but um, for a lot of people listening, freelancers, it's like, we have to create that for ourselves. So the fourth trimester is this period of time where the new mom needs everything the new baby needs. And so cocooning, protection, constant food source, warmth, uh, and the mother needs to be taken care of just as we, it's obvious to us that the baby needs to be taken care of. Mm, that That's powerful. The mom needs to be taken care of as well. I was reading this article from a woman who worked with you after having a baby and then she wrote about it for the cut. And she said something that really stuck with me as someone who's never experienced it. So I've never had a baby of my own. And she said that she would confide in people about her struggles as a new mom. And they would just brush her off and they'd say, yeah, you're a new mother. Of course you feel this way. Do you think it's the standard to brush off the feelings and experiences of new mothers, like, like which happened to her? And if so, where do you think this comes from? I think it's changing. I think, you know, that my book, The Fourth Trimester came out in 2017. And maybe, you know, like just recently, the, the Bidens, they put out a Marshall Plan for Moms um, proposal for a specific stimulus check for moms. I think that this conversation is really changing. But I do think that most women's work is in the unseen realm. It's in the nurturing department that we don't monetize and we don't, and if it is monetized, it's undervalued. So that's like a decades old conversation and a centuries old problem of just, um, you know, valid valuing that which is paid for and that which is out in the outer world and not valuing that which is not seen and that which creates the horizontal connection and springboard out of which the rest of the thing happens. So talking specifically about how pregnancy and motherhood changes your relationship with your body, what have you learned in your work that you want others to know? I want women to know that if you have done tons of exercise like bar method, horseback riding, yoga, um, dance, that your pelvic floor might be really toned in a way that doesn't facilitate childbirth easily. So in my case, I was a yoga practitioner and a dancer and I really trusted my body and I felt like I had, I was really healthy. And because of that, I didn't realize that there was anything that I could have done to facilitate my birth experience which would be to be targeted physical therapy or the kind of work that I do integrative work 
to stretching those muscles. It's the equivalent of having a bent arm, like a, a lot of bodybuilders walk around with their elbows bent because their biceps won't let go to let their arms straighten. You need some external pressure for that to happen. So uh, that's one thing that I would like people to know. I would also like people to know that recovery and, and becoming a new mother, it's not just like a box you check. There's so many layers of ourselves that get rearranged in that process. And attending to each of those layers is a part of the healing and the maturation into the new version of yourself. Not that you can't be parts of who you were before, but there will be something new. And that new is also your evolving sexual self. So what you wanted before might change the kind of conversations that you have and that that's all really normal. You know, the postpartum time is really like the time of feminization of sex. It's the time when female pleasure needs to come to the center. And so to what extent we've internalized male-centered um, climax, male-centered gaze, what's attractive, not what's attractive or sexy to us, but what the culture tells us is attractive or sexy, a lot of that gets really re remade. And then it's confusing because you're like, well, okay, I don't want what I wanted before. So I only have these three kinds of language to describe what it is I think I'm feeling. I only can say I have low libido or I'm touched out or I'm not attracted rather than, oh, I'm just different. And I need a more nuanced way that I can communicate about how that I am now. I, I was hoping that um, you could talk to our listeners, especially the mothers, or maybe those preparing to become mothers, or maybe those supporting mothers, how would you encourage them to start to reframe their relationship with their bodies? We tend to think that bodies won't change, or, or if we think they'll change, we only think about how they'll change in ways that we don't like. Bodies are changing and evolving all the time. And in fact, as a body worker, you know, and a yoga teacher, I've looked at tens of thousands of bodies over the last 25 years. And it's very easy to tell what people do with their bodies based on how they carry themselves, right? So their bodies are very malleable. We do ourselves a disservice to only relate to our bodies in terms of how we want them to look and not the magnificence of all of the transformations that they're carrying us through. And I think that it's part and parcel with holding our value in terms of what we produce or how the world sees us rather than our intrinsic value. And, and I do feel like this healthy aggression that I call the predator energy or the huntress energy, it is a, a, it is a key there because any kind of body has access to an infinite amount of pleasure more than we even know. If we can activate that healthy aggression and that fight energy, that's power and that's purpose. And when you're connected to that deep source energy, which is life force energy, which is also sexual energy, which is our power, it's not what most of us as women are socialized to do. We're not socialized to get into that energy. That can be what tips the thing where instead of like, quote unquote, like saying affirmations and like working on ourselves and telling my looking in the mirror every day and saying, I'm beautiful, even if you don't fucking believe it. And like, maybe you'll eventually believe it, but maybe you won't. It's a, there's something deeper that comes underneath it that, that just displaces that, like uproots that thought form. Wow. This has been fantastic. I mean, it's just so interesting to, to hear it from a totally different perspective. And in this podcast, I'm the student in the sense that 
I have to look toward experts and people like you who are in the field doing the work to have a different perspective on my journey of body acceptance and body love. And so thank you so very, very much for being here with all of us. Thank you. Where can people learn more about you and the work you do? I have a great class that's called Trauma and Transcendence. You can go to magamama.com slash trauma dash transcendence. And I kind of walk people through the cascade of nervous system responses. That's, it's like an hour long class. And then I also, you could go to the Jaguar page, which is magamama.com slash Jaguar. And that's, there's like a free class just on that page right there about, it's either called like how to have world changing sex or something like that. Um, well, something like that Instagram. sounds pretty good. So All right. Any, everyone can find me on the gram. Perfect. Thank you so very much for being here. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. If Kimberly Johnson is enmeshed in the divine aspects of motherhood, then Angela Garbez is grounded deeply in the scientific. Her book, Like a Mother, is part memoir and part an exquisitely researched journey through the culture and the science of motherhood in the 21st century. Let's just jump right into it. Before you wrote your book, you had this viral article all about breast milk and more specifically, the moralizing you felt coming at you from all sides when it came to the decision of whether to breastfeed your baby or not. So can you walk us through how that article came to you and what prompted the research and the writing that went into it? Sure. Um, gosh, I didn't know we were going to start there and that's like taking <laughs> me back. So that's, um, Take I wrote your that time. article. Yeah, no, 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 it's fine. I, uh, I'm excited. I just, I love when I go into an interview and I don't actually know what exactly we're going to talk about. Um, so I that, hate that. So that's yeah. good that you love that. <laughs> um, so that article I wrote in 2015, which, so now that's, you know, almost six years and, um, I had another child in between then. So, um, I actually, when I wrote that, I would think I was really naive. I mean, I understood that there was, there were like, I had a lot of questions I'd say is really how that started, which is how really like all of my writing starts. Um, I'm paying attention to the questions that keep popping up in my mind. And, you know, before I would say I was fortunate. So I, you know, when I was pregnant, I was like, I'm totally going to breastfeed. I, I want to do that. I was like excited about giving birth. I just feel like it's this tradition that's incredibly powerful. And this is what our bodies are designed to do, whether or not you want to do that or not. Like, I just thought it was kind of incredible. And then I, I make food that the baby eats, like, okay. And you hear a lot. I think that people face tremendous pressure uh, to breastfeed because you're told breast is best. So right there, I had a question, which was like, so if you're saying breast is best, that somehow implies, like I was willing to accept that. It made sense to me. Like we've evolved as mammals over yeah. time. Um, but when you say it's best, it, it kind of also implies that formula is somehow worse, right? Or somehow bad. Um, and I was like, I know plenty of people who, you know, well, breastfeeding is, um, it's like a full-time job. Um, it's difficult. And I know people who weren't able to do it. So I felt like it was, it, I was kind of setting it up for, so that was like a, you know, something that was in my mind. One of the other things that pregnant people and breastfeeding people will hear is that breastfeeding is better immunologically for a baby. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, okay. And then I, when I would stop and ask like, so how does that work exactly? How is breast milk immunologically better for a baby? 
no one had an answer, like no doctor or nurse or, you know, lactation person could tell me. And I thought, huh, I, I think I'm, I feel like I should have a, there should be a better answer than we don't really know if you're going to tell me this um, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of assign this value to it. So that was really like, um, those were like things that were in my mind when I was pregnant and when I was beginning breastfeeding. And then I got a job. Um, I started a new job as the staff writer at a newspaper, a staff food writer. And so I was in this in, and I started that job when my oldest daughter was eight weeks old, which is ridiculous, but that's a story <laughs> for another time. Um, so basically I'm at this point where I'm working full time. I'm thinking about food all the time. I'm writing about food all the time. I'm eating food all the time and I'm producing food. And so I was just really fascinated. I, it, to, to me in a way, it seemed like an extension of my job, which was like to think about food. And this is really like the first food. Um, and so I wanted to, um, I pitched this you know, article on Breastmill because I was told you should think about writing a feature and what are you thinking about a lot these days? And I was like, I'm really interested in breast milk. <laughs> and like the paper that I worked for <laughs> is an all weekly that is it's most famous. The editorial director is Dan Savage. Like they published Savage Love, like not a paper known for stories about motherhood. No. <laughs> um, so like the room just went dead silent and I was like, okay, well, uh, I'm still, still thinking about it. And uh, I just kind of, it was my own curiosity. It was not anyone encouraging me to follow this. I just really was like, I can't stop thinking about it. I'm doing this thing that, um, that I love doing, but, and that seems like miraculous to me, but it's also very like literally draining and I have a sore back and I'm up all the time and I'm pumping. And I didn't think it was going to be this hard. So in some ways, I think I was looking for motivation. And so the beauty of being a journalist is you can just find an expert and call them up and ask them a question. Whereas if you're like Amy at home in your living room or Angela at home in your living room, no one feels the need to, you know, give you a good answer. So I found an evolutionary biologist who studied mammalian milk. And I just asked her, like, what's, you know, what's the deal with breast milk? And why did they say that immunologically is better? And what she told me just blew my mind, which is that um, she said that, you know, when an infant suckles at a mother's breast, um, there's a vacuum that's created. And some of that milk is like sucked back into the nipple where there are receptors in your mammary gland that read it. And if they detect a pathogen or an infection, they can compel the mother's body to create antibodies specific to that infection. I mean, come on. So, I've I mean, never heard that yes. and before so this, I read the article. Yeah. And I was like, why doesn't everybody know this? <laughs> like, yes. why aren't we talking about this all the time? So you're making, it's a way of communicating with your baby. It's literally medicine, it's food. Um, and so I was, you know, I had a lot of enthusiasm around it and I really wanted, and I, I just felt like women and especially mothers and birthing people and pregnant people and parents, new parents, we feel so like what has happened to our bodies. Um, And to know that these are what our bodies are built to do and it is amazing. Um, So I kind of like, you know, I was sort of high off of this conversation and I wrote a um, article that I wanted wanted to capture that sense of wonder about bodies um, and what we do. And I was hoping that maybe a few people, like this is just a local paper here in Seattle that published it. And I thought, you know, I think a few people would be interested in it besides moms. And it is the most, to this day, it's the most read article in the paper's history. It wow. has like millions of page views. And to me, that was just really validating. And I realized it's not me. It's not just me who has these questions. There are lots of people so who have true. these questions. And lots of people who want to talk about it. Was you know, the feedback ahead. mostly positive? 
Mostly. I mean, whenever what I learned, I was, like I said, I was sort of naive. Um, I mean, I look back on that and there, I think, you know, there's certainly some things that I would do differently. I definitely wrote about breastfeeding in a way that didn't fully acknowledge how hard it is for some people, gotcha. whether that's physically or, um, you know, some people, most 50% of like American mothers go back to work like two weeks after they give birth. Um, so it's just not really possible for people to do it. Um, right. So I definitely got some of that, uh, and which I, I take that criticism for sure. Um, you know, but it, it definitely, it, it, you know, it kind of pushed me down this path to question more about how we think about mothers and to eventually write the book that I wrote because there were a lot of people who still couldn't get past this breast formula thing. Um, and I felt that there's frustration. And I thought, you know, kind of people had support if we actually just had things like family leave right? Where people could figure out how to breastfeed or how to formula feed, what works best for their family, what works best for them. Um, if we, if new parents had all the support that they needed, we wouldn't really care how we right. fed our babies. We'd just be doing uh, it. We wouldn't worry about what other people were doing. And so it's, you know, I think it's kind of commonly referred to as like the mommy wars, right? Which is to yes. set people up as being, being opposed to each other. And really, I think we should be thinking about taking that frustration and aiming it at structural things. Like, why don't we know more about female reproductive health? Why don't we know more about this? And why don't we have more support? Like that's where I think we should be directing any kind of anger or frustration that we have, not at each other. What do you think are some of the first steps we need to take in order to dismantle some of the shaming or controlling practices, like even the one you just talked about that we see yeah. going on with new and expectant mothers? Like, what do we need to do? What are the first steps that we take here? Oh, I mean, I think it is like we, there are steps that we can take, but there's also like the culture needs to change. You know, the idea that there is a, the idea that thinness and whiteness are the ultimate signs of beauty, like that's, I alone cannot, you and I together cannot change that. We can have a conversation around it and we can encourage people to start to undo that um, and to look around and realize, you know, like the average size of American women is actually like a size 16, I think, you know, I mean, it is not, um, that's one of those things where I'm like, I will talk about this all day long, but it. it is not my responsibility to change the culture. There's a lot of, you know, right. it's like there's in, there's a whole health wellness beauty industries that need to um, wake up to reality. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, for sure. so I think that, you know, but I, and I think it can be really hard in a health setting, even with someone, like I said, like, I really like my doctor, but it can be really hard to push back. But I think it's just sit with that feeling and be like, where is that coming from? You know, and I think it's worth reminding ourselves that like a body, just like a person is never inherently a problem, right? Like it is this, it is kind of the junk and garbage that we accumulate, that the messages that we get from society that tell us, um, that make us feel bad about our bodies. There's nothing inherently good or bad about bodies, right? Like there's just, they just are, they keep us alive, you know, like they grow people. Like, I, I mean, I really just feel like in pregnancy, especially what we should be focusing on is everything your body is doing. It's growing a new, it grow, it grew a new organ, a placenta to keep a fetus alive. It's, um, circulating blood and oxygen and nourishment to a baby. It's growing a baby. You've got like twice as 50% more blood going through your body. Um, you're, it's like amazing what it's doing. And I think really instead of thinking about all of the things that like 
you don't want it to do this or you don't want it to get to this certain size, how about just appreciating what it does? Um, so I think, you know, really like reframing, I think we're due in America for a major reframing of like everything, you know, for how we see, how we talk about bodies and especially how we talk about pregnant bodies and postpartum bodies, you know, um, like I really, it's, I reject that idea of like bouncing back um, immediately after pregnancy. That's just not something that most people can attain. And you're just trying to figure out your new body. Um, your body has changed. How do we accept that? Um, and how do we also grieve like the bodies that we kind of lost or that we miss? Well, my, for my final question, I wanna ask you this. Something you wrote that I think is, again, really beautiful. You talk about this network of mothers sharing information and antidotes as spider webs strung up around the world. So it's a perfect segue from what we were just talking about. You talk about this infinite, if sometimes invisible network of strength. So. I love that because in a way that's kind of what we're trying to do with this podcast. Like realistically, we're not going to solve every problem facing women in 12 weeks, but we can try to make women who are listening, realize that they're not alone and what mm. they're feeling. So first off, I just wanted to let you know uh, that we absolutely love how you talk about that, the spider web of strength. And I wanted to ask you like, what comes next? What are the next steps inside the spider web of strength. Huh. Um, yeah, that's when you say that it's taken, it's, it's taken me back because like, I haven't, I've been, you know, the, I published the book like three years ago. So, um, I haven't really spent time in the words. And when I wrote that, I was thinking about how a lot of it was like, you know, what, but as I was saying earlier, like the, the answers that I wanted, I couldn't get from like, a website I couldn't get from a doctor. I wanted like real stories. I needed like the lived experience of what this was like and where I got it was from other mothers, other parents, other women. And it was not always people that I really knew. Well, it was, you know, one of my college roommates, older sister who became a lactation consultant, right? Or like a friend of a friend. And my friend was single and didn't have a kid at the time, but her friend who I didn't know very well had a kid. And so it was just these people who we were texting late at night and there was this urgency to it. Um, and I think there's still urgency. And I think, um, I mean, I love that idea. Like let's, why does it have to be invisible? I mean, I think community is great and informal networks are really what are keeping so much of us afloat right now because the government isn't like coming to help us, right? Like if we're right. surviving because we're helping each other. And I, think like why can't we formalize that why can't we kind of demand more from American life in that way and say like we want um you know better health care accessible health care um even universal health care for people so that these kinds of questions about our bodies um don't have to be answered like just like with late night text that we can really go to providers that we can trust why don't we talk about the reality of new motherhood and pregnancy and new parenthood? Why don't we create policies that reflect workplace policies and family leave that reflect that? I think that we have had these invisible networks of strength, but I'm tired of it being invisible. I think that yes. we should actually make that the, I, I guess if I'm just gonna like mix up all my metaphors, why don't we take the invisible spider webs and make them the actual um, like strong scaffolding of like a more just and um, equal society. 
That's yes. <laughs> That's a perfect ending to th this conversation. One million percent. I, so beautifully said. Moment of truth time. With this episode on motherhood, I wanted to explore a topic that I haven't experienced personally. I feel like through my interviews with Kimberly and Angela, I've learned so much about the pressure that new moms face and the separation of their identity from their bodies as they commit themselves fully to this new journey. Here's the thing, though. When it comes to having my own kids, it's not just that it never happened for me. I never wanted it. I'm telling you this because it's hard to say out loud, and if working on this podcast for the past few months have taught me anything, it's that the hard things are usually the ones we need to talk about. I'm also telling you this because I have a sneaking suspicion that more than a few of you out there have struggled with this decision as I have, and don't yet feel like you can express it to your friends and family. I don't want you to feel alone like I once did. So here's my story. Growing up, everyone tells you, you will be a mother. They buy you baby dolls and show you how to hold them properly. If you're like me, when you become a teenager and decide to start earning money, your parents didn't tell you to start a paper route or look for a job. They didn't even ask me what I was interested in. They told me it was time to start babysitting. By the way, when we tried to find statistics for girl versus boy babysitters, Google just returned a bunch of articles with names like can men babysit? So that should tell you all you need to know. And despite the universe pushing me toward this inevitably, I never felt that magical connection to motherhood that other girls and young women described. I didn't see it as part of my future, and that didn't feel like a loss to me. It felt as natural as realizing I didn't want to be a baseball player or take up painting. In fact, the only thing that gave me pause about not wanting to be a mother was how often people would tell me not to worry, that someday, no matter what, that switch would flip, and I would want it more than anything. This concept, delivered like comfort, usually came out more like a warning. Don't wait too long to realize you want a baby, or that baby might not come so easy. When I got married to Hobie, I sort of assumed children would be in the picture someday. He's such an amazing man and was already an amazing father, so why wouldn't I want to create life with this person? But life happens when you're making other plans. I found that I loved Cade and I loved caring for him as my stepson. I was also starting this entrepreneurial journey. And even at the ripe old age of 32, that magical switch everyone kept telling me about still hadn't flipped. So I focused on my other baby, my business, and I nurtured it over the years into something that I was and still am incredibly proud of. I've never regretted that, but that doesn't mean I've never felt loss about it either. When I was 38, Hobie got a vasectomy. Even though it was my idea, I still cried the whole way driving back from the procedure. Later, reflecting on those tears, it wasn't that I felt like we'd made a mistake, but more like we had made a final decision and closed off one door forever. Even if you know you don't want to make a choice, there can be comfort in having the option available, like a safety net. I had snipped away that safety net for us. 
I cried again later that same year when my best friend shared with me that her dream had come true, that she was pregnant, that her life was changing in exactly the way she wanted it to. I cried to myself, but the selfish part of me cried because I felt like I was losing my best friend to a world I wasn't part of. Also, as I've mentioned several times over the course of this episode, I am a parent to my stepson. I care about him every day. I fussed over scraped knees, helped him out with friendship squabbles, sat proudly through graduations. Still, sometimes I feel like this divide between myself and other mothers, and I know it's just not in my head. Once, after a business mastermind, I was boarding a plane with a group of women who had also attended, many of them mothers. One woman was describing in painful detail an issue she was having with her child. Upon seeing me in the group of sympathizing listeners, she told me, almost like a joke, that I wouldn't understand because I'm just a stepmom. What floored me most about that interaction, after the sting had worn away, was that I know that she knew there were so many different ways to create a family. Women adopt, they foster, they take in nieces and nephews or grandkids, or like me, their partner's kids. I can't imagine that she would have ever said something like that to a single mom with part-time custody or a parent going through the adoption process. But she said it to me, and she wasn't even ashamed, confident in her assertion that a stepmom is not really a mom at all. This is part of why I hate telling women who have children that I don't want children. Why I feel anxiety sharing this with all of you right now. I'm afraid that they might be judging me, but also I'm afraid that they might think that I'm judging them and I promise I'm not. I think having children is a wonderful thing, like being a novelist or a sculptor. I think the heart of the issue is this. When motherhood is exalted as the best and the only thing for a woman to aspire to, then there is no way to be neutral about it. I'm not trying to take a stand. I'm just trying to be me, Amy. And the one thing that I do not feel neutral about is supporting all the other women who I know are just trying to figure it out for themselves too. Oh, and next week on Talking Body, we're talking about sex. So get ready. Talking Body is hosted by me, Amy Porterfield. The show is produced and edited by Chelsea Harfouche with production support from Sterling Coates. Episodes are written and researched by Chelsea Harfouche and Amy Porterfield. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Special thanks to all the women who participated in the interview and research portion of this podcast. Talking Body is a 3% Chance production.